AVXL 143 was recorded on June 16th, 2021. Nits, Foot Lamberts, Lux, and Lumens. Let's talk about what all this light measuring really means. Elax Unify reference, why some Bluetooth gear sounds awful. Hint, it's not really Bluetooth's fault. And we're going to talk LC3, SPC, Bitpool, not Deadpool, Emotiva's GR1, and so much more. Don't forget email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And we are going to get technical. We are going to get touchy-feely. We are going to be, you will laugh, you will cry. This episode of AVXL will become a part of you. It will be a Boy. sweet, lovely nerd fest. <laughs> Us? Nerdy? Nerdy. Surely you just. Just a little. Oh, my goodness. So, okay, we've been talking about projectors and televisions and sunlight, and this has led you to decide we really need to talk about, uh, partially, I think, mostly after talking to me and me being all foot Lamberts and you being like, no, and me being like, but that's what everybody measures them with. And you being like, ugh. And then so Nitz, foot Lambert, Lux, Lumens. We're talking about measuring light in slightly or vastly different ways. Totally. <laughs> and it'd be good to recap this just for anyone shopping for projectors or any display system. It could be an LCD or any other TV where you're just simply comparing how bright is one system versus another. And right. when we talk about lumens, that is a description of the total amount of light radiating in all directions over some given amount of time. That's often, at least in scientific terms, or depending on which Wikipedia article you're reading, it'll be referred <laughs> to as something called luminous flux. And another way of thinking about that is the light power. It is a function over time. So that's one way to keep your mind wrapped around that. It is usually describing some light source, and that could be a projector lamp or an LED, an individual LED. Flashlight. Exactly. A headlamp. Now, often they'll use either a rotating or a spherical rig that are sometimes used mm -hmm. to actually measure and evaluate something like a lamp or an LED or whatever is being evaluated. Lumens by itself is not something that by itself really tells you a hell of a lot about, say, a projector. We want you to remember lumens right now, because picture a guy with a bulb. doesn't matter if it's an incandescent bulb, Edison style, or if it's the super fancy focused bulb that goes in your projector. But imagine somebody taking a raw measurement of that bulb in 360 degree space around it, and that gives you a lumens number. And I'll give you a hint. A lumens number is often vastly larger than what happens to the light from that lamp when it is focused in a particular direction and sent through a bunch of stuff like, say, color wheels and lenses. Let alone the screens itself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a little um, bit too. But another term you'll hear used a lot is lux, L-U-X. And that literally is how much light is from some source is falling onto the surface or a subject. Now you can think of photography or just lighting in general in terms of right. how much light is actually reaching this specific spot. One lux is actually equal to one lumen per square meter. So if your lux meter is reading in a certain spot and it says 20, there are about 20 lumens of light power reaching that spot. 
So if I have my 2000 lumen flashlight and I stand far enough away, I'm going to get 20 lumens or 20 lux because not all of the light coming from the bulb necessarily hits the point I'm standing at or measuring at. And that's a good way to think about how that particular term is used, lux. It would be in a sense like you were lighting a person or someone on a stage where you wanted to know how much light was hitting them right on the nose versus something on their shoulder or any right. other situation like that where you need to do some comparative measurement. Now, when we get into foot lamberts or nits or candela per meter squared, they're all effectively saying the same thing. It's a measurement of light as seen by the eye, more or less. Light that is emitted <laughs> in a specific direction. Now, for display systems, that would be the light from the glowing pixel itself or something that was reflected, say, off of a projection screen. I really like to think of it more as a measurement taken from the viewer's perspective. Now, when it comes to describing projector performance, we mentioned that lumens by itself really isn't that helpful. But there's a term that you can look up called ANSI lumens, and that kind of comes to the rescue by averaging light as far as it's measured across nine equal areas of a projected image. And it adds also some kind of... Exactly. <laughs> and it adds some rules about what kind of meter is actually needed to take that measurement among other things. ANSI lumens is great to get a very comparative number to go from projector to projector and do a, a valid comparison about how much light you can expect coming off of a display surface from one given product to another. There is also ANSI contrast, which we also love so much because that measures black and white to get your contrast right. measurement, but it does it also in that nine equal areas where half of them are lit up and half of them are black and then it switches back and forth creating a good average, a good realistic, sometimes called intra-frame contrast. Those ANSI specs tend to be the ones you want to look for. And we were talking about all the problems you can have with any kind of projector setup. We always recommend, <laughs> when possible, you simply position that projector as close to the screen as possible. Minimize right. the throw distance, minimize how much you have to use lens shift or any other functions. The more you have to zoom it in, the more it's going to take away from the actual light coming out of the screen. And of course, if you can scale the screen size. Until we were dealing with our friend in, who was having the difficulty with his ultra short throw projector, I've been dreaming of going from a 100 inch to a 120 inch screen, the decadent extra 20 diagonal inches. And then I realized by punching it into a calculator that that was going to cause a significant reduction in the number of uh, foot lamberts or nits or candela, i.e. the amount of light that was reflected off that screen back towards my eyeballs. And it was probably a, more, a larger drop than I wanted to deal with uh, because occasionally there is sunlight coming through the windows in the terrible basement home theater. If you have an ideal setup with a pitch black room, Many right. projectors are going to be quite adequate uh, for producing a beautiful looking image. But when you have even a little bit of light that's influencing the picture, that's where these tips like getting that projector as close as possible and going with perhaps a smaller screen size will really help out. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, and gain. Don't forget screen gain. <laughs> a little gain can be nice. A lot of people love the 1.3 gain screens for average rooms. It gives a little extra punch to the light reflected. Uh, if you had a perfectly light-controlled room, something more neutral, like a 1.0 gain, or even perhaps mm -hmm. a contrast-enhancing screen, if perhaps uh, your projector doesn't have the best black levels, that's a whole different discussion. And I'm, well, <laughs> I'm sure we've gotten into it, and we will get into it. But speaking of brightness and black levels, though, I wanted to quickly follow up about something I found a company doing correctly, and to highlight that. And last week, we were talking about 
somebody had emailed or questioned us about how they could use the brightness and contrast controls on their TV to get a brighter picture. And I regularly complain about how brightness, that brightness control on most TVs is often mislabeled. It's a historical thing that just unfortunately persists to this day through many manufacturers. On those TVs, that brightness control is used to adjust the dark detail or the black level mm -hmm. of a picture. It is not something you want to use to actually make your picture look brighter. <laughs> However, I right. had the pleasure of looking at a Sony TV last weekend and... Right there in their picture controls, the brightness control was an actual backlight level control that affected the overall brightness of the picture without negatively affecting any other picture characteristic. They also provided a separate black level control, which would be the equivalent of a brightness control on other TVs that was specific oh, nice. for tweaking the visibility of those darkest details. And just to say that, yeah, it's not all manufacturers making this confusing situation, but Sony at least is sticking with the true terms and making it a little more clear in their setups for their TVs. And I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I do. Think it's a I know it's, 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 <laughs> I'm just it's kidding. nice to have better control or at it's least nice. properly labeled. Yeah. You think about it. Somebody looks at the menu controls on their TV and it's like, I need to make this picture brighter. And Hey, here's a control called brightness. And Oh wait, uh, why did it just turn all my, Deliciously. Why am I? Why is it gray now? Yes. Why did my <laughs> contrast ratio just go to hell? That is what I'm trying to prevent. In general, for TVs, if you need a little extra brightness, right. check for the backlight control, whatever it is that's specifically controlling that function on the TV. That's what you want to adjust. Backlight is a term used for LCD televisions. On right. OLED screens, it might be labeled something like OLED light level or some other term like that. It can be labeled differently, but you do not want to adjust the black level of a picture unless you have a good test pattern and there's a reason to do so. Typically, you shouldn't yeah, have to touch that at all. Fix what's not broken. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of fixing things that aren't broken, we're big fans of Andrew Jones. Uh, he oh, currently yeah. works at ELAC. He's done some tremendous things in bringing high-performance speakers to more affordable levels. I fell in love with the original Unify. That was one of his first speakers for ELAC. Um, probably a second speaker for ELAC. And then last year, I still haven't heard it, the Unify 2.0 came out. And this year, ELAC has announced the Unify reference. A step above the 2.0? Eliminating the technical barriers oh. associated with the Unify 2.0 price point, if I may paraphrase the press release. <laughs> I like that. Um, Money, no object. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me, put, it, let oh, me okay. put this into perspective. So Andrew Jones, uh, you know, was trained in physics, started out doing measurements for KEF, at one point was designing $50,000 a pair of bookshelf speakers for a company called TAD, uh, and then you know went to Pioneer and started developing very high-performance, very affordable speakers. This is not money, no object by any stretch of the imagination. It is more expensive than the Unify 2.0. They're now doing a cast chassis for the concentric and bass drivers. So remember, this has like a four-inch tweeter over a four that's centered on a uh, or concentrically located on a four-inch uh, midwoofer. Ooh, they've moved to cast chassis. Uh, they've moved to new driver designs. They've enhanced the bracing on the enclosure. They have a new crossover design. Um, it's very attractively painted. Uh, they've gone to a slot port on the front of the speaker instead of the round port on the front of the speaker that they introduced in the Unify 2.0. The original uh, generation of Unify had the port on the back. They're basically saying with this new crossover, they have, quote, true 6-ohm nominal impedance, which means it should be easier to drive than previous versions of the Unify speaker lineup. 
Full perimeter bracing, that basically means the cabinet's stiffer, so you have less enclosure noises or, or vibration impacting your sound. I like it. Curious to hear it. So there's the Unify Reference uh, UBR62-BK or W that's black or white, and it's a six and a half inch three-way concentric bookshelf speaker. That's a thousand dollars a pair. They've got a five and a quarter inch three-way concentric center speaker for six hundred dollars, and a pair of or floor speakers that sell for a thousand dollars each that use their uh, five and a quarter inch drivers. So in a larger enclosure, which means it should dig a little deeper in the base department. So, oh, I would like to pair those with some nice subs. Mm-hmm. I would, yeah, I would, yeah, I'm looking forward. So hopefully, uh, with a little bit of luck, I'll be able to go to CDA, CDA, uh, and a Rocky Mountain Audio Fest. So hopefully I'll get a chance to hear those if ELAC is in attendance. So cross your fingers, kids. Just in case this gets you on time, Monoprice is having a big sale on their THX Ultra Certified Speakers. They've gotten rave reviews. Like Audioholics gave them, uh, you know, five bar by five bar, five star, basically like five bars performance, five bars value uh, in their review of the mini tower and center speaker. That's uh, not particularly common from Audioholics, um, but this is a, a nice sounding set of speakers that include uh, all of the speakers in this lineup, except for the center channels have Atmos upfiring speakers built in. Pretty cool. It's like four speakers plus a center channel all in a bundle, and you save $275 to $700 on the bundle. In fact, a friend of ours just bought a set of these, and uh, he's very excited to get those installed. So heads up on that in case you catch the sale. Nice. Ooh. Yeah. Last week, I was highlighting how I had a chance to actually look at that premier RGB laser projector mm-hmm. from Samsung, the LSP9T. It had superb color saturation. Having true RGB laser diodes in a projector, they were claiming 106% of BT2020 color space, which is ridiculous in terms of a spec. Looking at the charts, when I was done with this thing, it probably covered that uh, a little bit well over 100% of BT2020. I found that blue and red in particular were both way more saturated and pushed even further into the highs and lows respectively for those particular wavelengths. However, I found that while the SDR and the BT709 performance was superb, getting that Rec 2020, that BT2020 color corralled and aligned the way it should have been was more difficult than I really liked it to be. LG has their nifty three laser projector that is not RGB laser. It actually, uh, but it's still three lasers and it's pretty damn sweet. It has a way more convenient setup in terms of using something like portrait displays, Calman software and some quality meters to get that thing with that incredible color palette that these projectors can generate, uh, making it easier to dial into the various specs and standards out there. Just to highlight too, if you have a Sony or a JVC projector, they have their own dedicated projection calibration applications that work quite nicely for very specific meters. Are those for consumer use or for calibrator use, those applications? Either one. It's prosumer to say the least. You basically, with Sony or JVC, most of the time you have to input your serial number for your projector, and then they'll spit out the software for that. There is good forum posts if the software itself is pretty complicated uh, or too complicated for your use. But I found overall the built-in instructions aren't bad and the results are quite good. It was just that in both cases, I found that they were very specific about what meters they supported. And if you didn't have that meter or other meter, it was like no go. 
and you were stuck doing more manual calibration style work on those things. But either way, uh, oh, also for this poor LSP 9T I looked at, not poor, it was quite <laughs> cool in many ways, but it's delightful and charming. This person had their screen set up so that it faced west into a wall full of windows. And boy, we really couldn't get any work done until the sun went down. So, uh, you know, I appreciate dedicated theater rooms and I love lots of sunny windows, but bringing projector screens into environments like that. And even with something like a light rejecting screen, you're not defeating sunlight streaming in through windows. Uh, uh, but once that decimated image disappeared after sunset <laughs> it got pretty damn impressive and uh, i liked it but i would for my money take something that's easier to calibrate something like what lg's doing right now and hopefully other manufacturers as well jump on having some kind of automated calibration function for these incredible color palettes that they're able to generate i also ran into some c10 and c1 oleds that look damn fine when calibrated and i'm getting used to that new updated menu in the 2021 lineup at this point i'll just say that i'd probably only be looking at the 2021 models of the oleds out there right now it seems that the 2020 stock is starting to dry up especially in the more popular sizes you may still be able to find a good deal on the largest of the oleds out there and i still don't think i've seen an 83 inch pop up in retail yet i want to see that big oled at some point However, if you deal with a bright room, again, OLED might not be the best answer. Those TVs get darn bright, but sometimes an LCD is really what you need to deal with a really bright room. And for 2021, I have to say that one TV that just jumps out at me is the QN90A from Samsung. Mm -hmm. The folks over at Ratings measured it out at 1,860 nits of light output in their real-world testing. Combine that with Samsung's superb anti-reflective coatings, it is just something to behold for a brightly lit room where you need all the light in the world and a screen to deal with it. OLED isn't always the answer, but I do appreciate that contrast in a well-controlled room. But otherwise, yeah, LCD and super bright. And I can't wait to see more of those uh, 2000-ish knit TVs coming out for 2021. This would be nice. Light cannon. Yeah, we were talking about this the other day, a couple years ago, I looked at the first VESA rated desktop monitor that was 400 or 600 nits. And I remember thinking like, oh, you know, I'm ready for a thousand nit monitor. And, and then I realized that the vast majority of the televisions that have been sold in the previous year weren't even at 600 nits. Uh, and Still 400 aren't. nits was not that unusual a value. For 2,000 is, you know, it's not the 10,000 nits that we're all looking forward to in, in the super future, but it's still a big number compared to what was, you know, out just a couple of years ago. A full white screen on a 1,000 nit PC monitor, that is insanely yeah. bright. That is difficult to look at. And when I talk about TVs like the Samsung, that can hit close to 2,000 in the real world, that is not on just a white screen. That is typically in your peak highlights. It makes the things on the screen that should pop really pop. And it is nice. clear, especially in bright rooms. It is as important, if not the most important aspect of picture quality when you're dealing with uh, ambient light that may not be fully controlled. Control my lights, please. Indeed. Oh, goodness. So, uh, flagship AVRs from Sound United, Denon and Marantz, that'd be the AVR 8500H and the AV8805. They have gotten 8K HDMI 2.1 upgrades. 
uh, they are the A models. Uh, so they're getting 8K 60 hertz upscaling and pass through, 4K 120 hertz pass through, HDR 10 plus, dynamic HDR, HDCP 2.3. I said 2.3, as well as other HDMI 2.1 tech. Very cool. Yeah. Sound United says there will be, quote, an upgrade program for existing owners of the two flagship models. Uh, it's going to start June 15th. $600 in the U.S., $749 in Canada. you got to reach out to Morantz or Denon via their website. Sound United owns a bunch of companies. Denon, Morantz, Class A. They bought Bowers & Wilkins last year. What? Um, that gives them, uh, yeah. I, I did not that. realize that. They, they did that. They did that thing. Uh, so that gives them a high-end speaker brand to go along with uh, the ever-popular and affordable Coke, who makes uh, some very, very nice speakers for the money. And, oh, yes, they also own Definitive Technology, and they own Boston Acoustics, and I had no idea Boston Acoustics actually still existed. So <laughs> Bowers & Wilkins is one of my absolute favorite speaker companies. They're right up there with everyone. They make some good stuff. And Marantz is one of my absolute favorite AVR manufacturers. Just from a design standpoint, I always love yeah. the look of their products. And the fact that these are all Sound United <laughs> brands. Surprise! I am, uh, I I am drinking I've the Kool-Aid, four Denon AVRs. So, yeah, I'm curious to hear the, some of the new uh, Bowers & Wilkins speakers later this year. Shifting gears into personal audio, I uh, got a quick headphone review for you. Emotiva did not expect Emotiva to release a headphone. They were kind enough to loan a pair of the Airmotive GR1s to me. Both Rob and I uh, have been really impressed with Emotiva speakers, and I suspect the $249 Airmotive B1 Plus bookshelf speakers are one of the great audio bargains out there. Good to know. It's a good price on those, and a nice couple of tweeters packed in those puppies. You know, I always get nervous when a speaker or an audio company starts to make headphones because it's really easy to make crappy headphones. And I've seen even yeah. serious professional audio companies make crappy headphones. Uh -huh. And then when you see things like graphene reference divines, uh, then I, I'm always kind of like my teeth are on edge. I'm a little worried. So I'm going to skip over the whole idea of graphene. I'm just going to tell you it's a super material. It's an allotrope. Uh, carbon. It's basically one of the physical forms that pure carbon can exist in. You it's might know, amazing. you know, yeah, yeah. So there's like graphite, charcoal, diamond, graphene. Uh, it, yeah, okay, I'll go into it. It's a single layer of atoms arranged in a two-dimensional honeycomb lattice. It's 200 times stronger than steel. It's not as tough or resistance to fracture. To get around that, what they've done is they've taken a polycarbonate driver, they've applied a graphene lattice to both sides of it, so that's going to make it much, much stronger. Generally speaking, everything you hear with planar magnetics, with you know people using um, all sorts of exotic materials inside of headphones, beryllium being one that comes to mind, is the idea that you want something that is stiffer and lighter, and that way it can be accelerated and deaccelerated faster and give you a more accurate audio experience. You know, stiffer, lighter drivers it, for speakers too are, are generally the goal, right, for speaker designers. Do you know if they're actually running any kind of current through that material or is it just simply Absolutely for not. its stiffness? Yeah. And it's lightweight. So these are dynamic headphones. Oh, okay. There's a cone, there's a coil, there's a gotcha. magnet. Uh, they're just using a very exotic material for the cone. And as somebody pointed out uh, in an article I read recently, there are still some fantastic paper cone speakers being made so true that <laughs> on one hand you know they're they're exotic materials and on the other hand people are still using some very very old materials i had to give a shout out first thing to the build quality on these um they're semi-open 
I looked at them. I thought they'd been milled on a CNC machine, but it turns out they are water jet machined aluminum, the exterior grill. The body of the, the cup of the speaker, the speaker, the, the, the cup of the, the ear cup, basically the body, the center part of it's wood, um, a nice piece of ash. It's about three and three quarter inch in diameter. That's holding a 50 millimeter driver. That round aluminum cup that faces out, uh, it's filled with hexagons. The hexagons are filled with tiny holes, so this is kind of a semi-open design. Uh, it's very attractive. It has a nice feel to it. Uh, the oaks and halo are sturdy. They're fairly well built. The halo's well padded. Um, the perforated vegan leather ear pads, which is a fancy way of saying pleather, are fairly comfy. My rather large and always growing larger ears are just feeling the edges of them. So unless you have Dumbo ears that are even bigger than my Dumbo ears, uh, comfort should not be an issue. 400 grams without the cable, not the lightest headphones, but not heavy enough to have me feeling like, you know, I was going to uh, tip over and fall from the weight of these on my head. And I have had that experience with some high-end headphones. For comparison, like the Sony 7506 you have, those are 230 grams. They're 32 ohms, so they're fairly easy to drive. They don't really need an amplifier. And I was really interested in the audio. They have a decent amount of bass down to 50 hertz. They start to drop off a little below that. I thought it was interesting that the treble, one, is not elevated. So this is a very, very good thing. And two, it's a little flat uh, compared to most of the headphones I listen to. I don't know if it's flatter than neutral or it's fairly neutral. Right. But it did not sound bad. It wasn't one of those. I mean, I had one headphone I listened to a couple years ago. And it was amazing because this headphone made it sound like somebody recorded, you know, it was so low uh, in one particular area of the, of the, the, the you know, one particular chunk of frequencies was so low that it sounded like all of the symbols had been recorded down, like the mic stayed in the studio, but they carried the symbols out the door and down the hallway right. and then played the symbol parts, right? So it, it wasn't like that. But uh, a fairly neutral, if slightly soft treble and a decent amount of bass inside of this. And they felt really good in my hands. <laughs> the design They're... sounds beautiful. And I'm sure they sound yeah, no, it's... decent. No, they sound good. You know, are they going to replace my Aeons for everyday listening? No, but the Aeons are a fairly spend a set of headphones from Dan Clark. Ooh, those are um, pretty. Those yeah. look nice. Oh, man. Yeah, the build qualities. Uh, it's an impressive piece of hardware. I like the fact it has a removable uh, headphone jack from the headset itself, unlike my 7506s, where yeah. I have to do some custom work if I want to do that. Yeah, you're going to be cracking this open. So it's not a <laughs> headphone jack, but it's actually, oh. uh, it's using standard, uh, I want to say 2.5 millimeter stereo connectors or audio connectors. They're okay. not stereo, they're mono. Um, so basically, if you can get to Amazon, you can get a replacement cable for this. So. Superb. I have not pulled the ear pads off, but, you know, because this is live and you guys can hear me say terrible things if I screw it up. Uh, um, let me stop necessary. before I break them. <laughs> Take it to the hospital and have them x-ray it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will return them to Emotiva in one piece and be a gracious reviewer. Actually, I think my chiropractor has an x-ray machine. We can bribe him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's going to go over real well. Yeah. Let me put the metal object in your giant oh. energy. <laughs> thing <laughs> oh my goodness in any case props to emotiva for an excellent first entry uh in the headphone universe got a viewer question from eric he's missing his old oled uh he emailed acidavxl.com he says my 2017 lg b7a died the year after he bought it uh waiting for parts for a couple months He's some failed visits from from tech support or uh, service techs uh, lg ends up giving him a check instead of a replacement tv and he was pissed he vowed never to buy an lg again uh, a couple years later 
Eric's like, okay, he picked up an XBR 55X900F, a very nice Sony television. He says, it's a fine TV, functioned as expected. However, I haven't been able to get over the deep blacks I had when the OLED was functioning. I've been longing to return to that technology ever since. I watch a lot of horror movies. I get that. Horror movies are very, very dark. I watch a lot of movies set in space. I love the deep blacks of the OLEDs. He adds, I've been poking around, looking up info on the 65-inch Sony A90J, and all sources seem to concur that it is a fine TV, but I find myself questioning my own motives in avoiding LG. Looking at the specs on the LG 65G1PUA, it seems as though it might have some advantages, such as variable refresh rate, more HDMI 2.1 compatible ports, and oh yeah, it's $1,000 less. So... Eric says, my question is this, is my ire towards LG justified and should I stick with my brand loyalty to Sony or should I get over myself, stop being a cranky old man and save $1,000? Thank you for all the valuable information you provide on the show. Sincerely, Eric. Good points all around. Hey, he makes These are all good televisions, by the way. I mean, he'll be a... happy with the LG or with the Sony. Heck yeah. A90J, I mean, that's their master series, Bravia. That's the flagship OLED the company makes. Right. That's the most expensive TV they make. I believe, especially for a 65-inch screen, you could save some money going with their A80J if it's simply a price versus spec thing. Same with the G1. Although LG has announced uh, this week, actually, that they've added a five-year warranty to the G1 panel. (laughs) If that design is not something you really need, that gallery series panel... The C1 would save you some money over that as well to keep the thing in budget or maybe even step up to a 77-inch, if so be it. He mentions VRR and HDMI compatible features. LG's going to be better every time. They, they seem to apply that across all ports on their TVs, whereas, oh, wow. as he mentions, maybe half the ports on a Sony are going to be fully enabled for those specs. So if you plan to have multiple devices taking advantage of things like, you know, your game consoles, your disc players, and other devices which may require HDMI 2.1 with variable refresh rate, maybe some computer use, you know, that kind of thing, I would say LG would be the better choice. I would not be put off from giving LG another shot. I have really no way of knowing how this particular B7 passed, Now, the big upgrade will be simply going from that B7, let alone that Sony LCD, and making the leap to one of the very latest OLED televisions that has all the support and updates, the performance that you really, really seem to miss. One thing I would suggest, though, for your electronics that you really consider precious is adding something like a power conditioner. For I'm looking at one right now from APC, and for under $90, it provides six ports. Probably half of those are actually for the power conditioning. I find that if there is any question at all about the quality of the power reaching your display, add something like a power conditioner just to help smooth out its basic reception of maybe sketchy power. Mm-hmm. Put less stress on the TV's own power supply and help prolong the life of your electronics. I am a big, big fan of that. If you're house or wherever this tv is located is already you know the back end is set up properly the power coming into that home is well filtered everything is relatively new-ish to standard and spec then maybe that's not such a big concern but man for cheap insurance over the long term of a product it's nice to have more than just a power strip sitting in front of your (laughs) your multi-thousand dollar oled investment it's good to protect the electronics as much as possible 
if you can't stop the handful of peanut butter slapping the screen, hopefully from a young <laughs> young child and not an adult, <laughs> it, you can do something about the electricity you actually feed it. And that's something to keep in mind, especially if you live in older homes like I have over the years and, and the sketchy electricity that comes with it. You laugh, right? But, you know, depending on the house you're in, the building you're in, or the region you're in, sometimes electricity gets kind of sketchy. Um, some friends of mine were just dealing with power outages, uh, possibly rolling blackouts in California, uh, although I don't know if they're doing that yet. My classic thing was we used to have, uh, in my friend's house, we were running renders on Apple machines a thousand years ago, and we had seven of them in this one room in the house, and it was fine um, until August until about 1 a.m., and the running joke was that all the babushkas in the neighborhood would finally give up on falling asleep, and they would turn on the air conditioner so they could finally fall asleep, and all six of those uninterruptible power supplies would start howling at the same time, and I'd have to run in there, because these, these renders took us like two days to do, uh, and I have to run in there and power everything down before the UPSs ran out, but we would we would see like two, three like ridiculous voltage drops when that happened. And spikes. I use a UPS, an uninterrupted power supply, connected to every workstation I use and every NAS box I have. Right. I am less inclined to add those to things like home theater components just because of the added cost, where all I really need in most cases is a power conditioner. Something to take the highs, uh, the, the sags and the surges, even those out, and give it a nice steady flow. Provide the least stress possible for the uh, power supply, and the related electronics. <laughs> As I cheerfully raise my hand, uh, Mr. Heron, should I get one of those $7,000 magnificent copper-encrusted audiophile-grade power conditioners, or are you talking about like a UPS from the computer store? <laughs> Either one would work, but I specifically was looking at a, a cool... Actually, this is from Triplight. Uh, a 600-watt, in my case, it would be 120-volt power conditioner. Right. Automatic voltage regulation and surge suppression and that would do everything i needed to do i'm not worried about a complete blackout it's more of those sags and surges or spikes or right. somebody's running a high amperage device nearby and it's on the same circuit and it starts pulsing the power in the room a little bit you could say as they flick it on and off that you want to avoid sending that to your precious electronics to give them the longest life possible i have found and this is totally anecdotal but my computers in general and the devices I have hooked up to uninterrupted power supplies seem to last forever. I typically right. have very few PC problems, let alone NAS device problems, because they're simply hooked up to a, a way of managing power outages and even shutting down gracefully if need be. Again, I don't really need that for my home theater setup, so that's why I like to save a little money but still have some of those benefits with something like a power conditioner. And I'm, or a line conditioner, it's sometimes called. And I'm sure there are lots of great brands out there. The Trip Light one I'm looking at right now is pretty freaking sweet. And that's a company I deal with a lot. I love their power strips. They're steel encased. <laughs> Practical. I think I have a cyber power. The cudgel of a I have one, power strip. Two, I use those yeah, almost I've, exclusively. I have at least two cyber power UPS is here. Oh, they have a 1200 watt version too. If 600 wouldn't cover it for you, but 600 would be more than enough for like a TV and a, a few other devices plugged in. If you had like a large AVR system, maybe, and you wanted, I, that would be something nice to run through something like a 1200 watt, the TV, the AVR amp, 
You know. I know. Keep that power clean. It's a good thing. <laughs> At Love Cake Boy, which may be my new favorite Twitter handle, enjoyed, quote, the discussion on volume knobs and AVXL last week, end quote. I enjoy a good volume knob. Let's let's be upfront about that. He tweeted out one other thing. You mentioned Synad a couple times in the show without explaining what it is. Those of us accustomed to swimming in jargon can easily forget that it is indeed jargon. Well, sorry. I, I We've talked about it, I think, once or twice. Synad's a measurement that's been around for a while. It's become particularly popular in the last few years, especially uh, at reviews, audio science review and some other places. TLDR, it's essentially the reciprocal of total harmonic distortion plus noise, which is usually noted at THD plus N. Uh, it's probably the most common measurement uh, you see in amplifier specs, at least legit amplifier specs. And when you look at THD plus N, you often see something like 0.005% THD plus N. Uh, Synad, that same level of you know harmonic distortion and noise would be 86 dB. Um, so the smaller the THD plus N, the better. The higher the synad, the better when you're looking at those measurements. Um, to get a little deeper into it, uh, Audio Precision, who makes the gear used to test the performance of most high-end audio gear, the most, you know, the sort of the high-end standard for these measurements, uh, synad is signal to noise and distortion, defined as the ratio of the total signal, desired signal plus the sum of all distortion and noise components, to the sum of all distortion and noise components. Sinad can never be less than one, and it is always positive when expressed in dB. So when you look at this, we're talking about essentially everything you don't want an amplifier uh, to do, which is to add noise or distortion or to screw up your signal. And it's typically the kind of classic measurement for this is done say with a one kilohertz test tone they use test tones because it's pretty much impossible to uh, <laughs> play rage against the machine and then tell me you know how you're going to separate the noise from the rage against the machine you can't right because noise is a fundamental part of that which is a discussion for another day which is how uh, or if he, people actually hear a lot of distortion in amplification but that's a rabbit hole and i'm not willing to go near it uh, but essentially, the idea is that t if if something has a very very low THD plus N percentage or a very very high synad number, that means it should be delivering um, an uncolored sound and it should be adding no noise or distortion to the sound. Like the worst thing I could think of is everybody's had an experience where they turned on a stereo or a radio or a car stereo and there was that <laughs> in the background, you know. And it's always there. Like you turn up the music and it gets louder, right? That's that's distortion or that's noise. All right. Well, that's noise. The distortion is what happens when the signal uh, falls apart as it gets amplified. I'm using highly technical terms here, by the way. <laughs> Essentially, you want an amplifier, you know, with a high synad or low THD plus N. There is some fairly serious obsession with these numbers now that may not be actually detectable in normal human usage. Um, but essentially, uh, cyanide or THD plus N, you're measuring how little the amp colors or changes, impacts, distorts, or screws up the sound. And uh, Cool. You know, yeah. There's different ways of doing it. For example, Audioholics does like a, a 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz THD plus N measurement, which is important because you pick up differences. You know, things you can hide with a single number at one kilohertz may become obvious because you also, you want a flat frequency response from, 
from your amplifier. You don't want it distorted in some ranges and not distorted in others. You don't want it to boost the bass and drop the treble. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to John Sieber. Uh, he's the engineer that designs the circuits over at JDS Labs. He says, there have been hyper focus on measurements in recent years and a race towards bigger and better numbers. JDS Labs has benefited due to our long-term focus on honest performance. If they agreed threshold for transparency was 0.005% THT plus N nearly a decade ago, that's only 86 dB Synad. Take a moment to consider that Synad of 96 dB is 10 times cleaner and 106 dB is 100 times cleaner than the previous agreed point of transparency. And JDS Labs, their their uh, Atom headphone app is delivering like I think it's it's actually I think we talked about it a week ago. It's actually even cleaner now, so it is a ridiculously pure uh, tool for amplifying uh, your input signal. So he he closely says whether you're an objectivist or a subjectivist or somewhere in between, please remember our goal is to help you enjoy listening to the world's best headphones. Audio performance is exceptional today. It yes. really really is. Um, that is a great you know, you'll point. also see people. Yeah, no, I, cause I, I bring that up cause I've, I've seen people on forums like, Oh, it's only got a sign out of, you know, 83 it's trash. And it's like, it's not trash. And if I bet, if I, if I, you know, if I level match an AB between, you know, an 86, you know, a, a, an amp with a sign out of 86 and an amp with a sign out of 106, I bet you won't hear the difference or you won't be able to tell me which one was which I could be wrong, but I doubt it <laughs> on this one. So yeah, that, I almost prefer Synad. Just it seems like an easier number and scale to get my head wrapped around. Granted, it's logarithmic, so keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, eighty-six to ninety-six is ten x. Uh, eighty-six to one hundred six is a hundred x. And either one of those is still easier to say than point zero 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 zero. Fewer decimals. <laughs> I do like the fact, I mean, though, that, you know, what was considered very, very good a decade ago at that specific right. rating, uh, if you can even come close to that nowadays with afford more yeah. affordable gear and devices now that clearly can exceed and push those, you know, ratings, be it Synad or THD plus N, even lower or higher, respectively. It's fantastic. I was kind of fascinated because when you look at the numbers, um, they have charts that they put together over at Audio Science Review. One of those is the Synad numbers for pretty much all the amplifiers that Amir, the the principal there, has tested. And I, you know, part of me being me and and having some issues with wanting to own all of the pretty amplifiers, I was looking at these numbers like, oh, you know, Synad of one hundred and one, one hundred and four, one hundred and six, and part of me was like, gosh, you know, my I got a Synad of 92 off of off of my Sonos amp. And then part of me is like, okay, that's ridiculous performance. And then they did a, uh, a somebody had massaged or updated the capacitors and stuff, not because they were trying to do fancy audio capacitors, but because capacitors are known to blow on this particular amplifier. But one I've owned, you know, for probably 18 years now. And it turns that one after it was refurbished, um, had a sign ad of like 91. So then I was just kind of like, oh, dude, back away, back away from buying all of the amplifiers because, right. you know, you already have at least three good amplifiers in your house. So uh, it's interesting to look at it, right? Performance for price has come a long way and yeah. it's not changing anytime soon. And it's just simply good to have specs like these that yeah. people people can more easily wrap their brains around and make valid comparisons between and speakers are still products at all prices. much bigger difference to your listening uh, experience. I agree. Speakers, speakers and headphones, they're going to make the biggest difference. 
Andrew tweeted at AVXL, Bluetooth audio lossy list does matter. I was in my car, started playing Eminem, went, why does this sound like ass? Even with new speakers, do we need an amp upgrade too? Oh, wait, I'm on Bluetooth. And then he switched the USB input on his car's head unit. And he says, all was right with the world again. For whatever reason, that just gave me a flashback to the uh, the hands-free USB adapter I used in my car that would convert my Bluetooth from my phone to that and then FM radio right. to my head unit. Yeah. I, it's <laughs> That does not have a very good Synad measurement. It, no. <laughs> and it would sound better if I could actually plug it in via USB, but that's probably not his case. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, so uh, I, I tweeted back at Andrew and say, hey, I would counter that Bluetooth implementation matters a lot more than the compression. What's the head unit in your car? Uh, SBC audio that can do like 192 to 320 kilobits per second, which is more than enough to sound good, especially when you get up into that 256 kilobit per second range. Some devices default to headset mode. Some just do crappy DAC. And right. some have a low bit pool value that limits bandwidth or overcompresses your audio. Uh, and as soon as I read bit pool value, uh, I was on a article on a website called Haber, H-A-B-R, audio over Bluetooth, most detailed information about profiles, codecs, and devices. Uh, I had to make a maximum effort Deadpool joke inside my head because really I am a 12-year-old. But part of the problem, especially with older head units in cars, is that in many cases they would do really irritating things like default or force your phone to use a monophonic headset connection instead of using uh, A2DP or, or any kind of uh, stereo uh, right. connection. And in some cases, because they were worried about compatibility, especially with older Android phones, they limited the bit pool value. So it grossly choked your bandwidth on your uh, your SBC stream from your phone to your head unit, which again makes it sound like ass to use a highly technical term that Andrew brought into the conversation. I would guarantee a head unit swap would make a huge difference. Anything that's made today should have properly implemented Bluetooth yeah, they make some great Android Auto head units. Some are just yeah. fantastic, what you can get today. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. As somebody who hated Bluetooth for a long time, it's been pretty good for the last three or four years if it's properly implemented. It's very, very good. And when you get into 256 kilobit per second audio, when you sort of get into a, a lab or a blind A-B testing on that, it starts getting really hard to tell that from lossless audio. And if your car makes any noise in the background, I don't think you'll be able to tell the difference. Just a thought there. Uh, you challenged me to do the Bluetooth.com LE audio audio codec demonstration. Oh, that was I think humiliating. We refer to it as a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I heard no difference what? in anything. I need to go back well, and try that again. Maybe I was you having should a go bad back. day. But it, okay, so it, it encouraged me to just get some Bluetooth earbuds and get on with my life. <laughs> Stop being yourself. such a cord whore. <laughs> <laughs> There's another highly technical term. Um, the uh, yeah, look, look, I, I, I had it was more painful for me to give up. I own a lot of headphones with cords. I really can't tell you how painful uh, it was until I realized it really there are some fantastic Bluetooth devices out there, and doesn't even really require Aptex or LDAC. Uh, just standard SBC is actually really good if it's implemented properly. Um, shifting gears to the future. 
Let's talk about the low complexity communications codec. That's LC3. That's going to be uh, basically later this year, it should show up. LE Audio, which uh, the Bluetooth crew announced at CES 2020. Um, this is a new high quality, low power audio codec that came out of Fraunhofer. The people that brought you MP3. Yes, they want to give you better sound with less bandwidth. They're adding support for hearing aids, and they're doing something called audio sharing, which is way cool. Product qualifications, uh, in theory, started last year during the great unpleasantness. Uh, products are expected uh, in the middle of this year. And LE, by the way, is backwards compatible with Bluetooth Classic devices. So you can get your Bluetooth Classic with your McDonald's Classic Happy Meal. Sweet. You can't blind test it, but, and I'll be honest with you, a, a random recording of Mozart's Ina Klein and Knock music uh, isn't something I'm going to know well enough to be really hardcore about my blind testing. Yeah, that was probably my problem with that test. A lot of violins, man. No percussion. I don't like thinking about codecs without hearing percussion. But it was really interesting. They had like 256 kbps SPC and 192 kilobit per second SPC. And the 192 kilobit uh, per second SBC on my setup here uh, was hissy, uh, and it 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 had a lot of tss and sibilance and hissiness to it. Now, looking at the 256 kbps SBC, my notes here say it was pretty indistinguishable from the uncompressed file because you can switch live between the different files. Um, I said the 64 kilobit per second LC3 sounded hollow. 96 kbps on the LC3 sounded pretty good. And 128 kbps on the LC3, I just wrote C, 256 kbps SPC and lossless. I, I, I couldn't tell any difference. All right. I really would like to hear some percussion, especially cymbals. Yeah. I like to hear familiar tracks that I've heard 10,000 times. You know, I might reach out to Fraunhofer and see if they have a, like an encoder you can use at home. Um, not that that's the same as, as using encoders that are built into firmware on your devices, but I'd be curious about that. Percussion for me is one of the things I really want to hear anytime I'm, t I'm looking at some sort of uh, device or, or new type of codec because percussion, especially cymbals, are hard because you have a really fast attack and then it, you know, it, it, it tapers off um, a while uh, before it resolves itself. When it's done well, it's spectacular. When it's done poorly, you know, you end up with bacon cymbals. Um, Understood. <laughs> Minimize so. the sizzle. Oh, and uh, audio sharing is fascinating to me. So uh, they call it broadcast audio or audio sharing. And the idea that, that a source device can, can broadcast duh, an audio stream uh, to an unlimited number of sync devices. Uh, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, the part of me that spent a lot of time in, in small rooms with, with hackers is like, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> beware the honeypot. Beware the poisoned Bluetooth connection. But uh, in terms of like, you know, having museums that want to do tours in multiple languages, or if you have TVs in public places like a gym, or if just you have a friend that you want to share tunes from your phone and have an impromptu, you know, disco party in the middle of an elevator, a silent disco, if you will. Excellent. This promises to be fun and useful. That's really sweet. I like that yeah. feature. Especially, you know, if you talk about doing something like that combined with, you know, hearing aids or, or even earbuds, that'll make it easier for folks with uh, hearing challenges to be able to listen without, you know, jamming the volume of the TV up to 100 dB. Something public events could take advantage of as well. Probably pretty yes. easily. You know, everything from theaters to maybe even outdoor or whatever. Hopefully it's just, yeah. it, it's a practical function. And I'm glad they added something like this for the upcoming standard. 
I look forward to seeing its flawless execution in the real world yep. in late 2021. Nice. <laughs> also, I should shout out to Audioholics because that's the first place I read the phrase silent discos uh, <laughs> in reference to Bluetooth. <laughs> They're on another level. Oh, my goodness. Hey, do we have time for a subwoofer update? Yes. We've been tracking the availability of subwoofers during the late unpleasantness in 2020 and continuing on into the exciting audio upgrade years of 2021. Uh, Sue backordered on almost all but their top and uh, high-end product lines. RSL Speedwoofers, they're doing pre-orders now for delivery in August. In uh, Monoprice's Monolith line of subwoofers, their high-end subwoofers, everything but the 10 inches in stock. And uh, those are beasts. Uh, I have a 12-inch one that I'm working with right now. That thing weighs, I swear to God, it weighs 100 pounds. And SVS, just about everything uh, they have is in stock, except for their massive 4000 series tower, which is uh, a massive, massive tower that uh, uh, is, uh, I, I, the specs on it are fascinating, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, oh, also, my. SVS, free shipping is always beloved of the peoples. So, subwoofers, they're in, they're gone, they're in, they're gone. If you're serious about buying a, 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 a high-performance subwoofer, and high-performance subwoofers start at like four or $500, um, keep your eyes peeled or pre-order if you can because they have just been getting hammered in the last 12, 16 months. Buy two. Yeah. You've been getting hammered for the last 12 to 16 months? No, no, I'm going to say <laughs> buy two subs. Don't buy one. Just buy two and be done with it. We'll, we're going to talk about or two subs next Multiples week. of two. <laughs> Share with your friends. <laughs> I know someone that did some experiments with four subs. That's a Excellent. That's fun stuff. That can really impact the design of a room. I'll just say that. Dedication. Oh, my goodness. We're going we're gonna to wrap this episode up. Uh, if you've got a question for us, you want to reach out, tweet at Robert Heron, at Pat Norton, or at AVXL. And, of course, emailing us, ask at AVXL.com is the best way to get to us because we're on email more than we're on Twitter. True There's only that. so much Twitter you can take before your skull starts to collapse. Although I will say I've been getting I, – I am now getting uh, tweets from Bandcamp about new bands, and I've also discovered a bunch of ska bands uh, thanks to Twitter. But uh, very cool. Yeah. Just what I need. More ska. <laughs> There's always room for more ska. Oh, goodness. Indeed. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I have cables to pull and a projector to reverse. I have, I have to make a new. Pro the cat killed the projector mount. That's Aww. all I'm going to say. 30 pounds of cat on a brass gear and a projector mount is not a good combination. <laughs> So now I have to build a cat-proof projector mount. It must be done. Got to keep the fur out of the hot parts. <laughs> I need to keep the cat from... I mean, the, the the there's no way... Unless the mount severs in two, there's no way it's coming down. But I really need the... You know, the cat has destroyed the soft part on the mount. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> if you've never checked the filter on your projector, it's... Probably good to do that at least once a year. <laughs> I do it like once a month. Yeah. The cat has not spent enough time up there to get fur into it, but I'm I'm not going to find out, you know, $300 worth of projection bulb late. Do not ignore the maintenance. Don't. Oh, you can ignore the maintenance. Just be prepared to, you know, repay a replacement or spend a lot repairing your unmaintained disaster. True that. <laughs> UPS is for everything. Shave the cat. <laughs> Protect the AV gear. 
Oh, my goodness. I'm going to back away slowly from the microphone. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.